Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, less than half of workers in Colorado's correctional facilities have been vaccinated against COVID-19. Now the department is offering workers a financial incentive. We're doing this because I want to advance vaccinations of our staff as fast as possible. We'll have more on that. Plus, we explore how live music events are starting to make a comeback with a few changes. All that and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Colorado is considered a safe haven for reproductive health care, including abortion access. But for low-income rural survivors of sexual assault, rape, or incest, accessing abortions covered by insurance can be extremely difficult. A bill making its way through the Colorado legislature aims to lift abortion restrictions for people who are sexual assault survivors and on Medicaid. Here to talk with us about the bill and state of abortion access in Colorado is Jack Teeter, the Regional Director of Government Affairs for Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains. Jack, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. The bill we're talking about is Senate Bill 142. What issue is it trying to address? So there is sort of a combination of decades old state and federal restrictions that come together to make abortion care extremely difficult to access for people on Medicaid. People on Medicaid in Colorado can only access abortion care in cases of rape, incest, and life endangerment already. And then additionally, there's a state law that means their coverage only extends to certain types of facilities and certain providers. And so as a result of this, the only place where folks can get care are certain hospitals. And to our knowledge, there's actually only one in the state. So for a survivor in Cortez, for example, that means a six to seven hour drive over a literal mountain range, even though there's an abortion provider in Cortez who takes Medicaid. Those barriers to access are catastrophic and I think really cruel when we're talking about people who are facing sexual violence. And so this bill gets rid of those those barriers. Under current Colorado law, survivors of sexual assault who are covered by Medicaid can only access abortion from a physician in a hospital, basically. You touched on this, but how easy or difficult is this in Colorado? I think it's extremely difficult. I only know of one hospital in the state that provides this care, and it's in the metro area. And the reason for that is most abortion care doesn't happen in hospitals. It doesn't have to happen in hospitals. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment tracks abortion care in Colorado, and so you can go on their website and see what percentage of abortion care happens in hospitals versus an outpatient setting. And it's between 99.8 and 98.1% every year happens in an outpatient setting, right? What we'd all recognize is like a normal doctor's office. And so this restriction isn't based in medicine, it's not based in healthcare at all, it sort of reminds me of the laws in Texas around how wide the hallways have to be, right? It's sort of taking a, a medically irrelevant list of building codes and applying them to restrict access to abortion care. What typically happens when people are in this situation where they can't get an abortion close to where they live because of this policy? I'm sure that there are some people who pack a suitcase and gas up the car and find childcare and drive six or seven hours into the Denver metro area and maybe stay at a hotel to get the healthcare they need before they go home. I think the vast majority of people 
wind up paying out of pocket, which is a shame, right? Because Medicaid covers abortion care in cases of, of rape and incest. And so this is, this is a covered service under people's insurance. It's a problem of geography. And so I think there are certainly people who would rather pay out of pocket than face trying to overcome all of these hurdles, right? There are abortion funds in Colorado. There are ways to help people pay for access to care. But I think this is just sort of a, a kind of a ridiculous injustice that occurs because this is care that is covered, right? The Colorado Constitution allows this, Medicaid covers this, um, and folks should be able to get that care without having to pay for a service they wouldn't have to pay for if they just lived in a different town. We mentioned earlier Colorado is considered to be a safe haven for reproductive health care. We've heard of people traveling here for abortions from other states where lawmakers have made it almost impossible for people to get them safely. I'm wondering how you think the restrictions we're talking about in Colorado fit into the national spectrum of abortion restrictions. I don't think people realize that there are people in Colorado that have to drive seven hours in Colorado to access abortion care. I also think that most people don't know this restriction exists. I think we know that Colorado is a safe haven for care, that people can get access here, that abortion is legal. The voters just defeated Proposition 115. Coloradans support access to abortion. and They're not interested in banning it. But legal doesn't always mean accessible. And so for people in rural areas, for low-income people, for people of color, for people who are a combination of those factors, abortion care may be impossible to access, even though it's legal, right? Legal doesn't mean anything if someone can't get time off work to drive seven hours to get the care they need. Legal doesn't mean anything if someone can't afford to, to pay for the care they need because their insurance refuses to cover it, right? People need to get childcare. And so I think this is really highlighting the issue of accessible versus legal. I want to ask about current political attitudes. Um, you know, Senate Bill 142 passed the state Senate in the last week of March along party lines. It was 19 to 15. What does that tell you about the current political attitude towards abortion rights in Colorado? It's a shame that abortion care is so partisan in the legislature because it's not that partisan among Coloradans. The voters don't feel that way. If you look at the results for Proposition 115, which was an abortion ban, right, that we voted on this year, Proposition 115 was defeated in counties that wound up voting for the Republican candidate for U.S. Senate and for president. We know from polling that like 90% of Coloradans support abortion access, at least in cases of rape and incest, right, which is what this bill is about. Something that I think of as being fairly extreme, right, like wanting to ban abortion is now mainstream for elected Republicans in Colorado, even though it's not mainstream for the voters. If we see the life at conception total abortion ban that runs in the legislature every year and is defeated every year, that bill was sponsored this year by former minority leader Patrick Neville. That bill would make abortion a felony one, which is punished with life in prison or until recently the death penalty. The new state party chair got started in politics leading Colorado's abortion ban ballot measures. And so it, it, it's, I think there's a disconnect, right, between these elected leaders and the voters of the state because the voters have been so clear that they are not interested in banning abortion. What happens next with Senate Bill 142? The bill has passed out of the Senate and it'll now go over to the House where it will have a vote in committee and then two votes on the floor. I think the bill will pass. I think it will be signed into law. And I'm hopeful that in this year, Rape survivors on Medicaid will not have to drive seven hours across the state to access the health care they need. Jack Teeter is the Regional Director of Government Affairs for Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains. Jack, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Colorado's correctional facilities were hit hard by COVID-19 last year. 
In some cases, the Department of Corrections says members of its own staff were likely responsible for bringing the virus from their communities into prisons, leading to massive outbreaks that statewide infected about 8,800 inmates and led to 29 deaths. Vaccines have been available to workers since January, but so far, less than half have gotten one dose. Now the department is offering a $500 incentive for its staff to get vaccinated. Even those who've already been fully inoculated will qualify. KUNC's Adam Reyes spoke with Colorado Department of Corrections Executive Director Dean Williams to learn more about this plan. Right now, less than half of CDOC staff have gotten the vaccine. Are you at all concerned about that level of uptake? I generally don't like to compare myself to other states, but we're right about in the middle with what I've talked to my colleagues around the country. Yeah, I, I'm a bit concerned because I, I want a higher up, you know, an uptake of the vaccine than what we're getting. So clearly we're doing this because I want to advance vaccinations of our staff as fast as possible because doing so not only saves lives, but quite frankly, in the long run, uh, allows us to get back to normal prison operations and actually Um, believe it or not, saves money because it's taken a toll uh, on the prison environment. You know, we've at one time we've had 14, 15 men or women in, in hospitals. And so getting staff vaccinated is critically important. Why did you decide to make this incentive $500? I reported on other companies also incentivizing their workers to get the vaccine, and many aren't offering more than $100. Well, I wanted it to be enough as I discussed it with other people on my team and others, you know, throughout the the administration to make it enough that it in fact would incentivize and would get people to go like, yeah, okay, that's even if I've been on the fence or I'm not sure. So I think it needed to be enough to move the dial. The reality is, is that, like I said before, this has been a very costly endeavor dealing with the pandemic and the prison system. So I understand some may look at that and go, gee, that's a lot of money. If everyone in in the department got vaccinated, you know, $3 million. I mean, that'd be a great problem to have, to be honest, because it's been an extremely expensive, I mean, our overtime alone, because people have been out, people have been sick, or people have been in recovery, you know, is in the millions of dollars. And so this really is our major effort to get the staff vaccinated, because it actually makes economic sense in the long run and avoids the real possibility still that we will have death behind the walls if I don't get my staff vaccinated. So if you end up paying out the full possible $3 million or anything even close to that, where is the money going to come from? We've saved money elsewhere, unfortunately, because we've had to shut down so many other operations. So trainings and other things like that, we have saved money elsewhere in the department. So in the end, the $3 million, if everyone took the vaccine, will be covered by Uh, funds already inside the department and federal money that have come as a result of the pandemic. Do you expect the funding levels for other programs to be affected by the cost of this incentive? It shouldn't affect funding from other programs going forward. We've been anticipating and looking at costs. I mean, we've been looking at this possibility for some period of time when we realized the vaccine would be coming our way. You know, we've been anticipating that we might pay an incentive if we need to, to get, like I said, to get uptake of the vaccine as fast as possible. Some public health experts express concern that incentives like these might be unfairly coercive for people with lower incomes. Was that considered at all when you were deciding to create this incentive? Well, sure, we, we considered all of that. Um, but as a department that operates 24-7 facilities, we have a legal duty 
to protect the people that are in our custody. So I have said the circumstances of a Department of Corrections is different or 24-7 facilities is different of the location. We're not mandating. It hasn't been mandated yet. That decision has not been made. And I understand the concern that some might view it as, you know, I would say it's certainly more persuasive, but it's still someone has the option. If they don't want to get the vaccine, they don't take the vaccine. But I think the department and the state has uh, the legal authority, and I think we have the obligation to protect the people who are in our custody by virtue of paying this incentive. And again, I'll say, whatever this costs us at the end of the day is a small, extremely small comparison of the cost of the pandemic continuing behind the walls, continuing to deal with potential loss of life in a continued outbreak scenario of, of prisons and having prisoners in hospitals and transporting them and, and assuming the cost of all the medical care of the people who are in our custody. So this is a drop in the bucket compared to the overall cost. You just said the department isn't considering mandating the vaccine yet. Does that mean it may be considered in the future? If I can get the uptake of the vaccine through the incentive, I don't want to venture speculate what might be done in the future if this doesn't, you know, substantially help. And so I'm going to take this issue one step at a time. The vaccine now is widely available and our staff have had that availability of that vaccine for uh, a while now. And so I want to give this an opportunity to work and we'll revisit any of those decisions once we see where we land. That was KUNC's Adam Reyes speaking with Colorado Department of Corrections Executive Director Dean Williams. We also asked Williams how he would rate the department's handling of the pandemic over the last year. He says he couldn't be more pleased with their efforts and notes the mortality rate within Colorado's prisons is less than the general public. He also said the 29 deaths are, quote, 29 too many. You can go deeper with our conversation at KUNC.org. In just a moment, we'll hear what the upcoming concert season could look like. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. This week, venues across the country can finally begin applying for the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant. This $16 billion program will provide relief for music venues that have been closed for more than a year now since the pandemic began. That, combined with the spring weather and the arrival of large-scale vaccinations, means we're finally able to turn our attention to something we haven't had in a while, live music, in small clubs, outdoor venues, and at festivals. Here with us to talk about what the concert season could look like is KUNC arts reporter Stacy Nick. Hi, Stacy. Hi. So I was a little surprised to see that not only are outdoor venues like Red Rocks preparing to open back up for shows, but indoor venues, places like the Boulder Theater and Fort Collins Aggie Theater are opening as well. Since we're still in the pandemic, what are things going to be like at those venues? A lot of that will shift. You know, I think if anything, if we learn anything this year, it's that nothing is certain. Um, but if I had to use one word, I think it would be smaller. And that encapsulates a lot of things, including limited crowds and a lot more local acts versus, say, uh, big name tours. 
And even as we're seeing capacities begin to increase, not everybody is is really ready to go to see shows yet. Cheryl Laguerre is the CEO of Z2 Entertainment, and they operate the Fox and the Boulder Theaters and also the Aggie Theater in Fort Collins. I spoke with Laguerre recently about what hurdles the industry will face over the next few months, and this was her take. Consumer confidence is going to be huge. Once we can get back to a normal capacity, once we are seeing tours move across the country. I think it's going to take a little while longer for people to feel comfortable coming into an indoor venue that is not restricted beyond your state restriction, your legal capacity. I think that's going to take a little bit of time for people to feel comfortable. For those who do feel safe returning to venues, what will that experience mean for them? I think a lot of people will be surprised about concerts this season, particularly indoors. There still are a lot of venues that haven't reopened at this point. Uh, Those that have are doing very intimate shows. Uh, Laguerre compared the current show experience at their venues to being almost like dinner theater. Instead of standing in a crush of people, you have uh, socially distanced seating pods uh, where there used to be long lines at the bar. You now have table service. Okay, I mean, that actually sounds awesome, especially as someone who's on the short side. I don't miss being crushed at the back of a a huge crowd. Absolutely. (laughs) What about outdoor concerts? Will we see a lot of the same things there? Yes and no. Uh, Shows at Mishawaka Amphitheater have a similar feel right now with table or pod seating. They've even done a few double features with an early show and a later one to allow for more fans to see an act. Planet Bluegrass and Lions, they've also started up this season uh, and they're doing pods as well. Obviously, outdoor venues have an advantage when it comes to putting on shows right now. More space, open air, better options for social distancing. Sure. And because of all that, more opportunities for concertgoers. Red Rocks, which only had a few events last year for very limited capacities, I think it was like 175 people in a venue that typically seats nearly 10,000, they're going to have shows up to 2,500 this season. Now, you might not see the huge headliners you're used to, but you'll likely see slightly bigger acts at those venues. And what about artists? Are they getting back to touring? You know, some are. I spoke with Chris Zacker, uh, CEO of Denver's Levitt Pavilion. Zacker is currently booking shows for the spring and summer season, and he said things are really looking up. The problem is that we need to see consistent opportunities around the country to make it really worth it for acts to do tours. A one-off show is just too cost prohibitive. And right now, there's still a lot of fluctuation across the country regarding how open states are. But just because a venue can open at a limited capacity doesn't mean it will. Planet Bluegrass, Levitt Pavilion, and Red Rocks are all planning seasons right now. But Fiddler's Green has been really quiet so far about their plans. The only thing on their schedule right now is an August Backstreet Boys concert that was rescheduled from last season. Well, it seems like organizations are finding ways to make summer events work. Is there anything that won't be back to some form of normal this season? Free outdoor festivals are really going to have the toughest time this year. Hmm. Um, It seems counterintuitive because it's outside and therefore safer, but these types of events also can't cap attendance or offer contact tracing as easily as, say, an indoor or a ticketed event can. You know, I checked in with organizers for several of Colorado's big summer festivals, and most said it's just too early to tell. 
you know, like uh, Fort Collins's Bohemian Nights at New West Fest. That festival draws more than 100,000 people over three days, something that, you know, right now at least seems impossible. You know, something that I, I keep coming back to is how as hard as all of this sounds, everyone I talked to said they're excited about bringing back events in whatever form that may be. But this year has made them very wary of getting too excited. Levitt Pavilion's Chris Zacker put it this way. When we project and when we talk about these shows, we're talking about down the road. We're not talking about today. And everybody between now and the time that first show happens has to remember to still be responsible to the rules that exist now so that everything we're talking to you about can happen. Yeah, that's a very good reminder after a very long year. Stacy Nick covers arts and culture for KUNC. You can find more of her reporting on our website, KUNC.org. Stacy, thank you so much. Thank you. Some communities in the West that are solely reliant on groundwater are starting to run into problems. That's the case in Moab, Utah. The tourist hotspot gets most of its supply from an underground aquifer. But recent studies found there's less water than previously thought. And that's led to a reckoning over development and the virtues of conservation. From KUER in Utah, Kate Gretzinger has more. Moab's water starts as snow on the nearby LaSalle Mountains. It trickles underground towards the town over thousands of years. But no one knows exactly how much is in the aquifer or how much is coming out. There's a pretty good groundwater monitoring system in the valley run by USGS, but we don't have any monitoring wells up here. That's Mark Stilson with the Utah Division of Water Rights. He met up with some colleagues and local residents on an empty lot above Moab. They're using a camera to scope out an old well that they hope to use to monitor the aquifer's water level. Going down, we're all the way down a foot. Stilson's job is to figure out how much water can be withdrawn from the aquifer each year. That's called safe yield. It needs to match the amount that's entering the aquifer, like a bank account, so it's not overdrawn. This new well could help establish that number, but the clock is ticking. A report came out last year that found the amount of water going into the aquifer could be close to what the city is using right now. John Weishite lives in Moab. He's the head of a nonprofit called Living Rivers, and he's really worried about the aquifer. We meet up at a grassy park on the south side of town. Hello, how are you? The park is also the site of a natural spring. In a way, we're monitoring right now. This spring is flowing, and even though that's not connected to a satellite or electricity, it's, it's telling us right now things are okay. Weishite says the new study confirmed his fear that Moab is much closer to overdrawing its aquifer than most people want to admit. But he opposes water-saving measures on their own, which the city council is exploring right now. Of course, we need to conserve water, you know. Our tree, a tree only needs 10 gallons, not 20. But if they take those 10 gallons and build another house, then why should I conserve? Instead, he thinks the city should stop new development before implementing any conservation requirements. But that may be too late, says Rosalind McCann, a professor of sustainability at Utah State University, Moab. She says Moab is going to have less water in the future, regardless of what happens with development, because it's in the middle of a global warming hotspot. Her solution? Do more with wastewater, like the system she has in her yard. So um, this is directed towards the roots of the Utah giant cherry and then the 
Used water from her sinks and laundry machine is piped into her garden, which is full of flowering plants and fruit trees. Currants, irises, and lavender, just loving gray water. McCann thinks systems like this should be required on all new development, along with systems to capture rainwater. But she says she understands why people are hesitant to conserve, especially if there's no transparency about where that water is going. I think that falls on the shoulders of government employees to communicate what the plan would be if X amount of water is conserved, where is that water going to go? Like, is it refilling the aquifer or going to new growth? That's where Mike Duncan comes in. He's a city council member in Moab who's becoming an expert on water issues. And he agrees that Moab's aquifer is in danger. But he says the city doesn't know how much water it's giving out right now. Every time we accept a new application from a new hotel or a new subdivision and so forth, it's basically a promise that we're going to have water for you indefinitely far into the future. I'm feeling queasy about that. To fix it, he wants the city to start attaching a set amount of water to every building application it approves. Duncan says the idea would allow Moab to track how much water is going to new users, and it would force them to conserve. Basically, you're going to put water conservation controls in there for everybody, okay? So the burden of conserving water is shared equitably across the board. But he says what they really need is that safe yield number. Because until Moab knows how much water is in its bank account, there's no way to avoid going broke. I'm Kate Gretzinger in Moab, Utah. This story is part of ongoing coverage of water in the Colorado River Basin, produced by KUER, distributed by KUNC, and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we begin a series looking at housing insecurity during the pandemic. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.